Welcome back to Diagram Dialogues. I'm your host, Jonathan Chen. On the podcast this week, we are sharing two panel discussions from our Diagram Media Forum this year. In this first session, our moderator, Cami Navarro, speaks to our panelists about how the APAC region can move from a volume-based healthcare system to a more value-based approach. Our two panelists are Gerald Koss, Professor of Emeritus of Pathology and Laboratory Medicine at UC Davis, and Professor David Thomas, Director of the Kinghorn Cancer Center in Sydney and the Principal Research Fellow at the Garvin Institute of Medical Research in Melbourne, Australia. All right. So hello, everyone. My name is Cami Navarro, and I'm a science editor at Asian Scientist Magazine, which is Asia's leading science and technology publication. So welcome, everyone, to the third edition of the Diagram Media Forum, which is organized by Roche Diagnostics in partnership with the World Editors Forum, which is part of the World Association of News Publishers, or One IFRA. So we're joined by representatives from regional media titles across multiple time zones, from India to Indonesia, Malaysia to Australia. Thanks everyone so much for tuning in. So for those who are unaware, Diagram is actually a regional healthcare magazine that is published twice a year by Roche Diagnostics. And it's a magazine with a mission. So to drive discussion around the value of diagnostics, uncover the inspiring stories of healthcare pioneers, and more importantly, to give a platform for patients to share their own healthcare journeys. This month's issue is themed around patient-centric care, and today's media forum is really aimed at bringing that topic beyond the pages of the magazine to spark real life, or at least in this case, virtual dialogue on what patient-centric care really means and how different uh, models of healthcare delivery like value-based healthcare could help achieve it. So all of these questions and more will be addressed by the leading international speakers over the next two hours. So I think we're all familiar with the saying quality over quantity, but this doesn't seem to apply to many of our existing healthcare systems nowadays. So even today, what we see is actually volume-based healthcare And that means that the amount of health services delivered is prioritized over the quality of patient care or outcomes. So not only has this really driven up healthcare costs without improving patient care, but it's also led to resources being stretched thin. However, it doesn't always have to be this way. If we are able to allocate the right resources at the right time to the right patient, then healthcare systems can turn the focus back to the patient, improving care, delivering more effective treatments, all while reducing costs and making the most of finite resources. So this is what we define as value-based healthcare. And that transition from volume to value is what we'll be exploring in this first panel today. So I'm joined by Dr. Gerald Jerry Cost who is the Professor Emeritus of Pathology and Laboratory Medicine at UC Davis, USA. And he's also a founding figure in the field of point of care testing. We're also joined by Professor David Thomas, who is the director of the Kinghorn Cancer Center in Sydney and head of the Genomic Cancer Medicine Laboratory at the Garvin Institute of Medical Research in Australia. So thank you so much for joining us today, Jerry and David. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. 
All right. So to kick things off, I'm curious to hear how you both view value-based healthcare within the remits of your respective fields of expertise, namely cancer care for David and point-of-care testing for Jerry. So maybe, David, we can start with you. Yeah, thanks, Kami. Um, well, cancer is uh, has undergone an enormous change since I graduated almost 30 years ago as a young doctor. Back in the 1980s and 90s, uh, we were treating everybody essentially the same. We would treat everybody with bowel cancer in the same way. We would treat everybody with lung cancer in the same way. And for certain cancer types, we didn't have good treatments and they were in populations that were too small to know what to do. What's happened in the past 30 years is that uh, about half a century of genetics and molecular biology have identified some of the switches that make cancers tick. And those uh, switches have been increasingly and effectively targeted with drugs which means that we can now what we call personalize cancer care. And that means that we're not treating everybody the same in principle. Uh, we're understanding what makes an individual patient's cancer tick and then bringing the right treatment to the right patient when they need it most. And that's the concept of personalized or precision oncology. So I would say that cancer, and certainly in the cancer context, this idea about value-based care where you're trying to measure the benefit to individual patients and then sum them across a population of patients rather than taking it from the top down and treating everybody the same, that's had a really profound, there's a really profound opportunity to realize that in practice. It's still uh, a work in progress though. Yep. So basically moving away from that one size fits all model for all of the cancers, you know, with the advances in precision medicine and also a deeper understanding of the molecular biology of cancers we're able to move more towards um, delivering value for these you know, individuals who have cancer. Exactly. Yep. So what about you, Jerry? Okay. Well, it's 9.40 p.m. <laughs> in California. I'll do my best. No worries. Yeah, I think that COVID has pushed the envelope of point of care considerably. And to make a long story short, people establish the value. In the NIH routine of it all, we're supposed to go out there and establish needs. Needs means whatever people need, doctors need, nurses need, so on and so forth. And right now, to get to the point in Southeast Asia, I have a gifted and talented young lady who is a research assistant continuing work that we started in Cambodia. I was three and a half months there as a Fulbright scholar in the first segment of this Fulbright program. 2021-22. And she's working real hard doing geospatial analysis going into specific provinces, notably the ones on the east side where there's huge traffic back and forth from Thailand bringing Delta COVID in. And on mm -hmm. the west side with Vietnam, where there's a similar problem with a little different character. And that study, which has progressed pretty well now, we're recommending placing rapid antigen testing exactly where it would stop some of the traffic of the Delta COVID and direct the people appropriately so that the healthcare industry, as it were, public health, the doctors, the local doctors who are totally overwhelmed can make decisions based on evidence of who actually has that virus. Now, in, in Cambodia at the current time, the government labs like the National Public Health Laboratory that sponsored my Fulbright and the National Public Health Institute, also a co-sponsor, and the University of Putasas, 
where Moigam Eng, my research assistant, are located, those uh, collectively are doing genomic analysis to see which patients have Delta. And if they do, they get put into this huge, long, painful, oh boy, five-week-long period of call a quarantine if you want. It's more like jail. I was in it for a couple of weeks and then again for another couple of weeks. So it's a really brutal isolation. And when you don't have a job and you have to feed your family, it gets even worse. So that establishes value very quickly for point of care testing. I mean, the, the PCR is nice as a molecular diagnostic technology, which is nearly definitive for identifying correctly the disease with high sensitivity. But rapid tests such as rapid antigen tests give you a different feel for it. And if you do a couple of those tests, the math shows that they're actually pretty good if you have 36-hour interval between two tests. And we'd like to see in the case of the province we're studying, a lot of those tests put out there free to people. So it's within their budgets. And their budgets, of course, in a rural area of Cambodia, like five bucks a day max. I mean, they have to feed their families and run their households on that, so on and so forth. So pricing and costs and so on is an issue, but always the value proposition of what you're doing counts more than the cost per se in developing a common denominator for implementing these kinds of tests. And then, you know, you'll say, well, Cambodia is a very limited resource country. How are they going to do it all? Well, the, the needs to satisfy the needs in the right strategic order is what we're working on, and they can't do it all. So they just have to, in every country, has to kind of struggle along figuring out what it's going to do. That's the value proposition for, for Cambodia. In where I live in Davis, California, we have terrible Delta surge here, like other places. The key that we found is just free, huge volume of testing everywhere. As an example, a couple of days ago, people worried about getting back to school and their families and so on lined up a thousand long to get uh, saliva testing, but saliva testing is not perfect because the sensitivity is quite low. The specificity is good because the endpoint of the university is a PCR test. So there, you know, the, the idea of value proposition in our community is to get as many people tested as often as possible. And the testing protocols have been integrated into the schools for the children, as you know, under 12 in America cannot be vaccinated yet. Mm. So they're going to be in routines like if they're not vaccinated, they have to have daily checks of well, temperature and wear masks in yep. school, so on and so forth. But additionally, the staff that is not vaccinated will have to be tested a couple of times a week. Now, that may be with a saliva test. Maybe if we're good, we can somehow talk them into doing something more expensive, rapid antigen testing. Mm. And for those that really want to know, they can get free PCR testing in this county, too. So, you know, the value there is to try to keep this thing under control, as it were to manage risk and manage avoidance and for sure to get children back to school and make them happy. Now, it's not, it's, not, it's not all that simple because recently my wife, who happens to be a school teacher teaching music, pointed out to me that in Florida, when the schools opened, 15 teachers died within 10 days. And I thought that was probably one of the most tragic things I've heard about the pandemic so far. And that certainly needs to be avoided. You know, when you get into mm. hardcore health economics, you can put a price tag on life like $10 million for each death. And that's not really satisfying because the people are dead. But nonetheless, 
we have in point of care testing for COVID at least a huge differential between what it does for the price it costs and what it saves in terms of lives and what those lives are worth. And certainly COVID has taught us that lesson. I thought, you know, when I read some of these questions in preparation, that the, the greatest lesson that we're going to learn in this pandemic is really how to establish the value of diagnostic testing, testing and procedures at the point of care, and what we should do for the next round, because the pandemics are getting, well, the big outbreaks are getting closer and closer together. We'll probably yep. see another one soon. Okay, back hopefully to you. Not, I mean, hopefully not so soon, uh, especially since, you know, COVID for many of us, it's, we're not even reaching that COVID endemic stage, right? But, you know, moving forward, since you did say that we do expect to see more of these pandemics happening, you know, closer and closer, do you see that an increased adoption of point of care testing, like in the long term? Do you think it's going to be something that's well, really it, just part of everyday it's life? Highly, you know, it's highly questionable whether it will be sustained long term. Uh, getting a model to sustain it is one of the things we need to do in establishing value. You may or may not have heard that Abbott, which produces a rapid antigen test as a small throwaway, so to speak, destroyed thousands and thousands of, of cassettes when the, the whole panic in the United States appeared to be disappearing in spring. Now they're ramping back up and producing. Well, one of the problems there is in terms of sustaining point of care, they really just couldn't give those away to other countries because there's mm. no way to get them into the other countries and get them through the legislative approval process and so on and so forth. So we're making a big pitch. In fact, one of the ideas of the Fulbright ASEN program in order to elevate, and my hand shows kind of there, in order to elevate the standard of care throughout ASEAN, there really need to be national guidelines and policies yep. that are somehow harmonized for all the countries. And one thing we need to do is to have a mechanism for quickly adopting, accepting, and approving tests in these different mm. countries. And I'm also a strong believer the country should invest more to develop their own testing technologies, their own detection technologies, and so on. The, in Cambodia, when I was there, the National Public Health Laboratory is like totally swamped. I mean, it's just incredible amounts of volumes of tests doing everything they possibly can. The director is working 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and I hope he'll last through it. So you're idea of value-based or patient-centered medicine kind of has to integrate across these different countries and, and the same wavelengths be established. Now, in point of care testing, Malaysia has a guideline, Thai, and it's yeah. in English. Thailand has one in Thai language. I hope that as a result of what we've done in Cambodia, we stimulate folks to, to put out or somehow mm. endorse a guideline. And I have a paper which will appear in Archives of Pathology and Laboratory Medicine where I kind of shyly, as it were, <laughs> present what I call standards of care for rapid antigen testing. It's provisionally accepted. It'll be published as soon as I can get the, yep. the little tweaks into the paper and get that thing out yep. there in its own access. You know, if you want to take a look at, for a, an example, there's a table with about six or seven di different categories there that gives you some idea of categorical establishment of value. And that mm. relates to you know, things like playing, teaching, praying, and, and it also relates to the testing protocols. So we yeah. can, by doing the tests in the correct order, in the correct place geospatially, we can establish value. And every mm. country can do that with the resources they have available. Then on yeah, the other absolutely. hand, they've got to get workers back to work and make sure that they stay there. 
So that's value. So it seems that you know across different countries, we will we should define value differently. So moving back, you know, although COVID nineteen is the topic of the hour, moving back to say cancer, David, how do you think in Asia? How can genomics and precision medicine provide value for patients, you know, who have cancer in this region? So, uh, well, just to give one example, uh, lung cancer. So, lung cancer mm-hmm. is a leading cause of cancer death in most higher-income countries, and I think broadly across the Asia Pacific as well. Its incidence is very high, and it's often diagnosed very late in the illness. So, um, there'd be close to ten thousand deaths a year in Australia alone of the hundred and 40-odd thousand cancer diagnoses, about 20% of those deaths would be due to lung cancer. Now, lung cancer is a disease which, when I was a resident 20 years ago, had no effective therapies. So once uh, once it had spread, it was a question of giving some chemotherapy and then palliative care. What's happened over the past 20 years is that there are now 11 bona fide drug targets, which if you can identify them in a patient's cancer, can extend survival by three to five-fold. I mean, not just a few weeks, but years in some cases. And the question is, how do you identify which patient is carrying which drug target? And that's through uh, this modern technology of genomics, uh, multiply parallel sequencing, which allows you to test all 11 of those drug uh, targets at one go. And even in Australia, where we have a pretty well-developed pathology infrastructure, we're still doing those tests one by one. So a good question for value-based care is whether we should take, once we get to 11 targets, we should take all of those 11 separate tests and put them in the rubbish bin and replace them with one fit-for-purpose, multiply parallel test. Do it once and find out what's present in that patient's tumor once and for all, and then use that information as early as possible in the patient journey to guide the choice of best treatment. That's something that we're trying to demonstrate today in Australia through a, a large-scale genomic screening program in lung cancer called Aspiration. And what's the future look like and why is that important? Well, I said that there are 11 targets. Those 11 targets are present in almost 50% of all lung cancer patients today. By 2023, assuming the current success rates in clinical trials, we expect that number to go up to 25 That means, and this is a trend that is uh, occurring in lung cancer as a poster child for the amazing success of precision medicine, but it's going to happen in all cancers. And so we need to think about how we demonstrate the value proposition from replacing old-fashioned tests with tests that are now fit for a new age, and then integrate them into healthcare to deliver the benefits to patients that that sort of technology can now provide. So you mentioned that, you know, even in Australia, which does have a well-developed health infrastructure already, these tests are still doing one, uh, still being done one by one. So that kind of ties into uh, my last question for both uh, you and Jerry, which is, you know, what are the barriers to, you know, having that one fit for purpose test? Like what still has to be done to be able to deliver these kinds of game-changing tests for value-based healthcare to be achieved? Like what's still what and how can that be addressed, especially, let's say, in other countries that may not have the same kind of infrastructure as Australia? Well, I mean, just to give you my sort of quick summary of thoughts, I think one of the realities is that science is moving faster than bureaucracies. So while Mm -hmm. science is demonstrating what can potentially be achieved, the health systems are still rooted in tried and trusted methods, which are frankly antiquated. 
Uh, you know, the idea of a single gene test and a single intervention is now being replaced in cancer by a test which does 10, 20 tests at once, and those have implications for 10 to 20 tests, 10 to, 10 to 20 treatments. Now, how do you get a value assessment on that? Well, the current health technology assessment processes, which still apply today, just are not fit for purpose. One of the elements in getting a value-based system of uh, assessing uh, the, the utility of these tests has to, has to be to try and measure the value for patients, value to the system. And that requires a learning-type system, which is very much data-driven. So there are implications for value-based care that go beyond the individual, individual intervention, but go to the way in which we monitor outcomes so that we can close that loop, measure and also then, uh, of course, fund it uh, through our reimbursement mechanisms. And I'd say that's the single greatest barrier, making that transition within our bureaucracies. Cancer's easy. The bureaucracy's hard. <laughs> that is a very quotable uh, quote from you, David. So what about you, Jerry? What do you think is a key barrier to achieving I, value-based healthcare? I think healthcare? David should run for political office, you know. <laughs> Solve some of these problems. Yeah, you're describing a cake with all kinds of layers before you could get to the frosting on top. So, well, I came from, I'm emeritus now, but ran a basic science lab in an NIH center for about a decade. And in that context, that layer, we see some universities establishing totally robotic laboratories where scientists can simply write software and describe an experiment and never go in the laboratory. Well, that's going to speed things up. And that will probably speed up a lot of what's happening for point of care testing in terms of basic technologies. NIH is trying to do that in their program to fund a lot of COVID tests. And along with the story at a more practical layer, if, we, if you will, of that cake, in our ER, we have to segregate patients that have COVID from the rest of the patients and not forget the rest of the world. So point of care is very important in both camps, the ones that screen for, for COVID. We have a little PCR instrument down there that can tell us pretty well whether they have the disease or don't. And at the same time, then we have uh, rapid access. Our laboratory is a layer above and the ER, and we get things done fairly quickly. So we're going to go next to the Philippines, and the question will be not in Manila, but in the Vesalius Islands. How can we deliver both of these dimensions of medicine fairly quickly? How do we get to the frosting on the top of this cake? And honestly, don't know yet. We'll have to see. But if we look at examples of other settings, the tests will have to be very, very carefully tuned to the needs of the people. For example, in rescuing people with acute myocardial infarction in rural areas, dealing with that health problem, which is unfortunately increasing everywhere in the world. We don't have any specific tests yet that can deal with the ambulance conveyance of those patients aside from cardiac troponin I, but that works pretty well. But you know, it'd be hard, like, like David said, it's the bureaucracy, my God, how can we get those kind of tests onto ambulances? Yep. So we're working in a, in a funny mix to decorate that cake where we're going to have to work with the political part of it and so on. And we do have a, a volunteer faculty from New Zealand and another one from Canada who are going to pitch in and form a team there and look at this from different uh, standpoints. And we will try to put together a network, as David suggests, of the bureaucratic people, as it were, in the different islands, mainly through the universities. The universities mm. are located in many different sites. So we kind of we think one of the layers of the cake is solving the geospatial problem. 
how will we work with different populations? And as, as the oceans rise for these island nations, such as the Philippines and Indonesia, how will we move with the population and keep them all safe and sound and rescue them quickly and so on and so forth? So one, one thing we're doing right now is putting together a, a chapter in the Encyclopedia of Analytical Chemistry that'll try to come out of, you know, this, to answer your question, but it's not here yet, is, you know, the thinking about how we can mix together multiplex point of care testing and mm -hmm. some of the other tests and deal with it all. In the COVID line, we're expecting in the United States a very, very hard winter of influenza AB. <clears throat> RSV has already been here. So multiplex testing for these common flus will be important to put alongside the others. And the same is true like with cardiac biomarkers to put some kind of multiplex story together in the Philippines so that they get more bang for the buck, not with each, with each blood sample. The blood is quite a precious commodity. It's difficult to get. It's difficult to experiment with and so on and so forth. And behind it all, then, in the Bicellus, we have the reference hospital. So what, what does the reference lab do? I was recently interviewed by a CAP Today College American Pathologist uh, magazine, and they're really very concerned about how the reference lab, that is the central laboratory in the hospital, mm. should position themselves now. And this is a big issue for Roche, coming like Roche Diagnostics because they offer both point-of-care testing and central lab testing. Yeah. So that's that's another layer on the cake to smoothly interdigitate those two. But, you know, my experience in short has been that if you have a really good test, doctors will use it. And conversely, if you kind of rush to market and you have a test not quite so good, they'll try it and then they quickly discard it because it's not that good in decision making. Mm -hmm. So what we will focus on in the Philippines is rapid decision making across the board. Yeah. And try to fix the geospatial system, whatever it takes, with a combination of point-of-care tests and central laboratory tests to make the yeah. geospatial solution more efficient for people. And that's the that's value actually, there. That's actually very interesting to me because I am from the Philippines myself. So it's nice to know that your team you know, is doing something to help us, especially when it comes to the COVID-19 pandemic. It's just really spread out throughout all of the 8,000 islands. Um, well, you can put have. your pen down and join us then. <laughs> you know, pen is, pen is mightier than the sword. So I admire that you're an editor and you're writing and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, we'll be there. It just, yeah. we'll be there in 2022. So, you know, we've been discussing about, uh, for instance, you mentioned that Cambodia is swamped and, you know, Philippines has its own set of problems. So now just going back, but let's say you've discussed uh, a lot about the point of care testing, but David, I'm interested when it comes to genomics and these, you know, in low and middle income countries, especially, how do you think such countries can develop this infrastructure, you know, despite having limited capacity, some knowledge gaps? Yeah, that's uh, that, that worries me uh, considerably. Uh, I think it's evident that across all history, there's enormous variation in the maturity and uh, and resources available within countries for priorities like healthcare, education, housing, and so forth. And I think we have to recognize that framework. The Asia Pacific is the single largest region on the planet. It is also unquestionably both the most diverse in terms of population size and uh, government political structures, but it's also the most rapidly evolving. Uh, the two largest countries on this planet, in fact, the three largest countries on this planet are all located 
in the Asia PAC, and they're rapidly evolving in terms of their resource and capacity to afford the high end of, of tech. That what is what is true of Singapore and uh, South Korea and Japan may not be true of Papua New Guinea, where mm. uh, even getting an an H and D slide to diagnose an osteosarcoma may be too much for a person out in the provinces. And those realities certainly apply. This is a point that I think Gerald, Jerry made earlier about having to make those sort of decisions. But practically, in respect of genomics. What should be funded, in my view, as a universal right of healthcare in single-payer systems, until that happens, and this is the comment I made about bureaucracies, governments taking on that responsibility for what is the leading cause of death in higher-income countries and still substantial, even in the uh, less well-resourced areas of the Asia-Pacific, what the governments will not fund will fall to either research, and that's true in Australia, that research, and that's true in the US and in Europe, that major national programs through research are uh, attempting to drive this technology and prove its value, if you'd like, for the patient populations, covering thousands of patients per country, or private insurance. And private insurance and the private healthcare sector are probably going to be the areas where patients who need this sort of technology, which can be transformative when applied correctly, will pay for it themselves out of pocket or through some other health maintenance organization or insurance modality. To be honest, it'll be a mixture of all those things and it'll vary according to uh, the Mm. environment. There's also education and training of the workforce to recognize when these things are appropriate. And I think what you can say is it's coming. It may come in five years, it may come in three years, it may come in 20 or 25 years, and in some places it may be challenging even then, but it's coming. And I think it will become incorporated into the education and training programs, and hopefully through those mechanisms it will become a part of every uh, good oncologist's uh, armamentarium and expertise. Uh, That's going to be a piece of work in its own right. Yep, so I like how you uh, emphasize the role of education and training. So now just moving on to some uh, Q&A questions that we've received. One of them is, so even though the benefits of value-based healthcare have been established, you know, you and Jerry have established that, many healthcare professionals and patients, a lot of people in the spectrum still actually do not fully understand what it means now or for the future, right? It's a very, it seems like a very big concept for some even. So uh, David, what are some knowledge gaps that you think have to be immediately addressed, you know, for a value-based healthcare system to start, you know, getting put into motion? It's a great question. In my view, value-based healthcare as a concept is predicated upon measure, measurement. You have to be able to measure value. And value is diverse, is, is quite diverse. For, for some, it might be objective responses and extended survival, for example, in the cancer space. For others, it might be the satisfaction with the treatments they're getting and their quality of life. And what is clear is that it's patient-centered. And systems don't do a great job in general of recording patient-centered estimations of value. For example, uh, getting to work, as Jerry said, that's a very important thing for patients. How does a system capture that uh, using its current ways of measuring value in healthcare? So in my view, one of the implications of value-based care is that the system has to be have to have a servo mechanism whereby it's getting afferent feedback. It's getting information from the point of delivery of those of that care to the recipient of that care to measure whether that's true a true benefit or not. And yet it also has to incorporate costs and it has to incorporate uh, quantitative data that's entirely medical in nature. That's a data-driven system, which mm. currently in itself is a cost to systems that mm. would need to be implemented. Yeah. 
And that data, of course, is what's used then for education and training and awareness. And I think those things are self-fulfilling loops, that as data comes in of the benefits, then that shapes a clinic, clinician and practitioner uh, behavior. Yeah, so that really just ties into, you know, what we see today with the rise of big data, but then, of course, especially given how diverse uh, the APAC region is, I think the next barrier would kind of be how to put these data-driven systems into practice, right? So uh, thanks for that. Maybe, Jerry, do you have any uh, last thoughts about, you know, what knowledge gaps you think have to be addressed for a value-based well, healthcare system? Yeah, and, and what I wrote recently, I translated knowledge gap to resilience gap. But let's start with knowledge gap. And I think for the future, certainly in the United States and probably everybody else, there is a big knowledge gap, and that is in public health. The diehard critics simply say in the United States, the government failed and so did public health. And at the start of this, you know, odd thing is about 10 miles from here is where the first community transmission of COVID occurred in the city of mm. <clears throat> Yapalejo, Backville, and those that area. Okay, the big knowledge gap in point of care testing is that schools of public health, colleges, and programs do not teach it. We did a survey of all, everyone, nobody skipped, all the colleges, schools, and programs of public health in the United States about two years ago, and found point of care testing only mentioned once. Wow. So I think that knowledge gap is rather critical because when we started to respond to the crisis of COVID in the United States, public health had no clue whatever about what to do. We had all these ad hoc solutions that came up, and a lot of them were very close to home here in Silicon Valley, drive-throughs, drives-in, walk-ins, and all this kind of stuff. And now one of my graduate students who is uh, more progressive, you might say, and studied in my lab for a while, who did get a master's in public health, is out there in a van providing testing, which is PCR testing, antigen testing, antibody testing, and make, um, multiplex PCR with flu and RSV. And, and, you know, it became so popular that the company he's working with in this model, which occurs in a van, they drive to sites where it's most needed in various communities around here, are adding other tests as well for cholesterol, wellness, and, and on and on. So I don't think we're going to be very resilient if we don't plug that knowledge gap in our schools of public health. And I really don't know how to move that machine. I've, I've tried through the pen, like you, and I don't know whether it's been effective. We'd have to go back and take a look. And then behind our papers, where we basically said over and over again before anybody even heard about COVID, guys, in public health, you really need to teach point-of-care strategies. You need to move, move your whole operation out to where people are, be more involved in communities and so on and so forth. Then along comes COVID. You asked earlier about sustainability. Sustainability will plug the resilience gap. If we go to the tops of the trees and look at the big concepts here that apply not just to point of care and what problems we address with that, but to some of David's area as well, we, we really need to have resilient models. We need to have resilient groups of people who have the knowledge to deal with the next problem that comes along. And that's how I would characterize for you the knowledge gap. It's really a resilience gap. If, if we don't mm. educate people and get people trained, headed in the right direction for the future, we're going to be in trouble. I mean, this, it shows not just in adapting to a crisis like COVID, which, uh, Cammy, you did mention endemic. The word endemic cropped up, reared its yes. head a little earlier. And I think we're there with COVID. 
but we have so many other endemic problems and diseases. And I don't see why public health can't be more involved in that. There are thousands and thousands of graduates every year from public health schools in the United States and all around the world. And, and I want to make a big case for maybe our reporters or viewers or whoever to get out there and try to push these public health people to educate their students in, in point of care technologies. Now, why can't they do that also in some of David's ideas dealing with cancer? I think the whole public health field, forgive me if I'm being too critical, is a little antiquated. And they need to really come step up to the line and look for the future that's coming. Yeah, thank you so much, Jerry. So I like how from both of you, we really have those rallying calls to action to, you know, go out there, educate, you know, maybe someday the same way DNA is taught in most of our schools. I hope, you know, point of care testing and all of these cancer precision medicine concepts could be as commonplace. So that's all of the time that we have left for our panel today. Thank you so much again, David and Jerry, for the really fascinating discussion for all of the quotable quotes that you guys have said, you know, those calls to actions. Uh, very much uh, my pleasure to moderate you guys. And that is the end of this episode. Thanks for tuning in. To find out more about Roche Diagnostics and Diagram Dialogues, please visit rochediagram.com. Stay tuned for the next episode.